the theme in the talk, I'd like to explore a little bit the sense of understanding what we mean by sacred space and sacred moments. When we come into a meditation room or into a meditation center, we are often invited to consider ourselves as entering into a sacred space. And I know this is a word, the word sacred, that's sometimes used very lightly or even in a cliched way. I would like to just explore that implication of that word in this context and in our life. What is it that makes any space sacred? What is it that makes any moment sacred to us? We come into a situation such as this, this place which is you know, totally devoted and totally given to serving people who are undertaking a path of understanding and compassion in their lives. Many people often say when they come into this environment that they feel touched in some way by a presence that seems almost invested in this space. And yet, when we come here, we see that this space is not made sacred through the presence of altars or Buddha statues or even through engaging in any kind of rituals here. But that this place or this time is made sacred actually through the dedication and the commitment that we bring to being here. That this place and this time is made sacred simply through our own intention to be awake, to be free, to live with an open heart in this moment and to deepen an understanding. Physically, tangibly, this space is just a building. It's just a room. And yet when it is a gathering place, a meeting place, a place of community that we enter together with a shared intention to be awake and to understand. This room and this place become something akin to our own Bodhi tree simply because it is a space that holds and witnesses the power of our own commitment to peace to wisdom, to compassion. When we sit in meditation, it's not in any way intrinsically a sacred action. We all know that when we sit on a cushion and are still, that there are many, many journeys on that cushion that it is possible for us to make. When we sit on a cushion, we can plan our futures, we can dwell upon the past, we can fantasize the ideal romance in our lives, we can replay the tapes of every moment in our lives we've ever been hurt or wounded. When we sit in a cushion, we can use that time very busily to redecorate our homes or make our holiday plans even. I am certainly not any kind of psychic 
spy, I actually have no idea what you are doing when you sit on your cushion. Just as you have no idea what I am doing when I sit on a cushion. We can all have the appearance of looking great, but it tells us very little about the inner territory we may be inhabiting or may be traveling. We can only ever know that for ourselves. It is what makes it our path, what makes it our journey, what it means that no one can actually ever substitute for us on our journey or on our own path. We also know that there is another journey that we can make as we sit upon our cushions. There is a way of approaching this time to come into this room to begin each sitting with a real openness to not knowing, a true commitment to rest in non-dwelling anywhere, to cling to nothing, to resist nothing. We can be, make this time on our cushions a time of a gift for ourselves, a gift of compassion, a gift of understanding, where we draw no conclusions about ourselves, about our experience, about our world. And then each sitting, each moment, is actually a journey of openness. It's a journey of ex exploration. It's actually a journey of learning how to welcome all things with a compassionate awareness. To begin each sitting with that heartfelt commitment to learning, to letting go, to understanding what it means to be free. To begin each sitting with that kind of unshakable resolve is a commitment to being awake, a commitment to being present. And when we sit in this way, we do actually sit like a Buddha. We sit just like a Buddha. In that spirit, we don't actually need a room full of statues or rituals or images. But we have a sense of being present and present in the power of our own commitment. Now, the simplicity that we honor and emphasize in situations like Gaia House and in so many countless environments which are similar to this around the world. The simplicity of this room, the simplicity of this place is a way of honoring that spirit and that attitude of allowing, of opening and of deepening. Simplicity is like a vehicle. It allows and invites transformation. It is something, as I mentioned yesterday evening, that we cultivate within ourselves. Now, when we come to a place like this, you know, you notice that there's not a lot on the menu. You know, we don't offer entertainment, we don't serve tea in bed, we don't have, you know, easy chairs in the meditation room, we don't offer endless books to read. And we do this not because we're particularly in love with deprivation or because we're particularly in love with rules, but in a way this simplicity is a very real 
means of honoring that spirit of renunciation, the spirit of openness, of not knowing. Because in this simplicity, we do actually lay down so much of the props of our security, our familiarity, our habits and our laws that in our lives become very easily places to shelter in or means to distract us from what is actually happening in the moment. When we come in a spirit of openness and a willingness to learn and listen, it means a willingness actually to let go not just once, but many, many times of our agendas and missions and all of our images of what should be happening. And I say we do this not just once, but many times. Even someone who has never been on a retreat before, it usually takes about 45 minutes before they have produced a whole kind of collection of images of what should be happening, what should be experienced, how it should be experienced, what our meditation should look like. Renunciation is a gift of compassion for ourselves. It is a commitment to openness. It's a real willingness to let go not only of our <coughs> collection of images and missions, but our real willingness to let go of beliefs and opinions and judgments. It is this inner renunciation, this willingness to allow things to be again and again and again, that actually makes the sitting and this time into a sacred moment, a time of learning, a time of being touched, and a time of opening. When we sit in this way, with a commitment to openness, in a very real way, we sit in the same spirit that inspired the Buddha on the eve of his enlightenment. In the story of the Buddha, it said, you know, that the Buddha had done many things in his journeys. He'd, you know, had a, you know, a little time with asceticism and willpower and striving and forcing and decided actually that, you know, enough was enough. This really wasn't taking him anywhere in his journey. And decided that at some point he would just sit. And would sit until he really understood what it meant to be awake. And when he sat beneath the Bodhi tree in the years of enlightenment, as the story goes, said that he was assaulted by the forces of delusion, the forces of Mara, that Mara tempted him to turn away from this kind of resolve with promises of pleasure, with uh, images of lust, with thoughts and feelings of anger and greed and doubt and hatred. It may all sound familiar. You know, we sit and look what's here. And the response, as the story goes, of the Buddha was not to resist, not to become agitated, not to become fearful, not to become a conqueror, but simply to say with confidence, I know you. I know you. I see you. 
I know you. And as the story goes, in the face of that confidence and that resolve, that the forces of Mara actually had no power. And that actually the poisoned arrows of Mara were transformed into flowers. Now, we could imagine how very, you know, this story of the Buddha is one that's been an endless source of inspiration of many people on this path to be able to sit with presence, to sit with confidence, to sit with trust, with not knowing. But you could imagine, you know, that this story could be written also in a lot of different ways. Imagine what the story of the Buddha would be if that clarity of intention and openness had actually been missing. If Siddhartha had gone to the Bodhi tree, you know, in a kind of ambivalent way, you know, and said, well, I'll sit here as long as the mosquitoes aren't too bad, or as long as it's not too hot, you know, or as long as I'm not uncomfortable or my knees hurt. And if they do, then I'm going home. You know, or if the Buddha had gone to the Bodhi tree, you know, with a picnic basket, you know, and a thermos flask and an easy chair, and said, you know, well, I'll give it a go. You know, or, or if the Buddha, in this story, the Buddha decided, well, I'm only going to sit as long as it's pleasant. As long as I'm undisturbed, you know, the first moment something disturbs me, I quit. And such a story, of course, is how to, you know, we'd all be doing something very different here. You know, the whole story of this tradition would need to be rewritten. I think what is emphasized over and over, what is emphasized again and again in this process, is actually the significance of our approach. It's not so much what we do here. It is truly how we do it. It is the spirit with which we travel this path. The attitude and the intentions that we bring that are actually transforming. You know, it is not just putting in a certain number of hours on a meditation cushion or observing certain forms that is transforming. What is actually transforming is our actual approach to what we do here our willingness to open, our willingness to see, our willingness to listen. This significant approach is important, not only in the way in which we approach our sitting and walking, but in the whole of our lives. Our practice is actually transformed through the attitude and the approach and the intentions we bring. Transformed through our intentions to learn, to open, to listen well, to be wholehearted. The whole of our world is transformed through this approach. It is a spirit of reverence, of respect, of trust, of an open heart, there is no room, I think, no place and no moment that is inherently sacred. But it becomes sacred through the way in which we rest within it, through our own willingness to touch this moment with sensitivity, 
to withdraw our demands, our expectations, our images. In this spirit, the whole of our world becomes a sacred space, and every moment actually becomes a sacred moment, an invitation to learn, an invitation to deepen. This spirit of reverence actually doesn't require a special time, a special appearance. It is open to us, available to us in any moment in our life. You know, sometimes in meditation we think of, you know, getting to to higher places, to better moments, to, you know, more enlightening experiences. And yet somehow I come to feel that the spiritual path is actually grounded and rooted in the simplicity of this moment. That when we really listen and see in our thoughts deeply, the ordinary in our lives becomes extraordinarily special. And sometimes the special in our lives becomes extraordinarily ordinary. When we are able to touch our world and touch ourselves in that spirit of reverence, there is, and that comes about, really a very profound sense of communion, of wakefulness and willingness to learn. And seeing in this way the enemies and the opponents in our world actually begin to dissolve. So often the things that we call an enemy or an opponent or a distraction are the very things we can't welcome, that we feel unable to open to. You think today at the moments perhaps, you know, when might struggle or resist or try to get away from something, how often the struggle lies not in what we are experiencing but in our fears about it, or our judgments of it, or the stories we hold in relationship to it. When we are able to welcome unconditionally each moment, then we do live within a world of many possibilities, an open and endless invitation to learn. When I was in India, living in India, one of the traditional things that you do in India is if you do this guru circuit, you know, you kind of travel around and you visit all of the famous and infamous gurus that may be alive or even dead at that time. And when I was in India, one of the um, popular, popular stops at that time was with this guru called Pundiswami. Now, Pundiswami, his story was that, you know, one day this farmer was out plowing his field and he saw this arm sticking up out of the ground. And being somewhat curious, he went and dug around the arm and discovered this person who was alive and well and breathing buried in the ground. So, as a, you know, being rather startled by this, he dug him up and eventually, you know, word got round and the local sadhus gathered like bees to honey and decided that this guy, if he could do this, he must be a really special person. He must be some kind of saint. So 
they put him on a trolley, this kind of little cart, and built curtains around it. And, you know, people started to come from all over India to visit Pundi Swami. Um, eventually they made a bus stop called Pundi Swami Bus Stop, you know, and people would travel from all over to come and see Pundi Swami. And the funny thing about Pundi Swami was that the curious thing is he never spoke, not from the moment that he was supposedly dug up, is he never actually said a word <laughs> that anyone could, you know, actually record or hear. But he would sit there quite happily on this cart, hour after hour, every day, and these long lines of people would just kind of snake to see him, you know, and namaste. And he would grunt, just grunt, you know, and he would sit there with a Coca-Cola in one hand and a fistful of money in the other hand and grunt all day. And then sometimes, you know, the sadhus would decide he was tired. I don't know how they ever decided this. And they would pull the curtains and he would disappear for 10 or 15 minutes. And then, you know, they would, curtains would be whipped open again and people would continue with this lineup to receive Kundi Swami's blessing. And all of these stories would abound, you know. There would be German people who came and say, oh, you know, he spoke to me in German. There would be people from Iceland came and say, oh, he spoke to me in Icelandic, you know. There would be people who came and said, you know, he never said a word. He just grunted, you know, this guy does nothing. And there were all of these different views about what, what was actually happening with Pundiswami. But there was no doubt that for some people who came there, you know, with this real sense of openness, they actually felt profoundly touched by this encounter. They actually, you know, were bowled over. It was a major spiritual experience to have this man grunt at them. And on one level, it really doesn't matter whether Pundi Swami was a saint or whether he was a fake. In one level, it really doesn't matter at all. Seeing that what was significant, that for those people who were really, felt they were on a journey in their lives, really questioning, you know, they didn't hang around Pundi Swami, you know, and, you know, set up camp and stay there forever. But they felt somehow really inspired to continue on that journey, to look more deeply you know, to, to travel the path well, really kind of re-inspired and renewed. And on that level of experience, it made no difference at all whether Pundiswami was a saint or a fake. What happened actually, what was happening, I assume this, is through that real openness to learning, there was also an openness to being touched in some way. Now this, this experience, of course, happens not only in India, in the land of gurus and saints, but I, I think in the world of my own, my own children. You know, how many times when they were small, you know, that I would have some, some big plan, you know, I had some big idea about what we were going to do, you know, that I would try to sell to them as being really special, you know. We were going to go on a hike somewhere to see something fantastic, or we were going to climb a hill, or we were going to go gather nuts or something. And so often, so many times, most times, we would get, you know, three or four yards from the front door, and they would find something. You know, some stones that fascinated them, or some nest of ants 
that totally captivated their attention or something so simple that became actually a magical world for them at that moment. You know, and in that moment of, of connectedness for them, in those moments when I was able to enter into that space with them to let go of my big ideas, you know, I could see that actually it is not always, you know, that being awake in our lives is not always dependent upon some grand event, you know, some, some big experience, but it is born much more of this capacity to see with such innocence, to see anew, to be able to see so freshly within our lives that transforms the world around us. For many of you, this is not news. You know, you, you see this many times on retreats. You know that, you know, you can be stamping along to the world, you know, busy thinking, 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 and suddenly, somehow there's this unfolding bud you know, or a dewdrop on the grass. And somehow we're startled into wakefulness. And that moment, that connectedness, becomes a sacred moment. I think it is important for us to really bear in mind that all things and all moments are welcome in awareness. That awareness has no blame also has no preferences or conditions. That the pleasant and the unpleasant, the moments of dullness or pain, the moments of peace and joy, awareness actually makes no distinctions, no hierarchies of better or of worse, of being for or against, but actually awareness embraces and accommodates all things that arise. Somehow within our minds we become hypnotized with our own hierarchies, our own preferences, our images and shoulds and judgments and goals. Sometimes we have so many of them. And we see how often actually we suffer. We suffer because we are imprisoned by our own judgments, by our own images, by our own ambitions. One of the small stumbling blocks we encounter in our lives is actually our addiction to safety and to the pleasant. How often our response in the face of the unpleasant, the challenging, the disturbing, is to turn away, to get away, to leave. Because the challenging of the disturbing actually doesn't seem able to offer us the identities that we feel most comfortable with. I mean, you know, you take such a simple thing as, as you know, a group meeting. I mean, if you had your choices, you know, what would you like to bring? How much nicer it is on those days when we can bring this kind of identity that's having a great time, that's at peace, that's calm. 
how often very difficult it is, you know, to be at home and not feeling, oh, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm having a hard time, you know, I'm, I'm battling with something, I'm like this. How often we find it so difficult to be able to embrace, to accommodate that which challenges us. When we have an addiction to the comfortable or to the safe, we also tend to have quite a strong uh, battle with aversion. It is very easy to divide our world into a world of friends and enemies, our inner world too, into a world of opponents and allies. But in doing this, we do very frequently abandon learning and exile ourselves from living in a sacred way, a sacred space. Some of the hierarchies or divisions that we create is to believe that peace is somehow separate from challenge, or to believe that calmness is somehow separate from thoughts and feelings, or that compassion is somehow separate from the difficult or the unpleasant. Or we believe that after our thoughts and our feelings and our challenges or unpleasant sensations have been got rid of or ended, then we will be at peace. You know, after we've managed to kind of, you know, get rid of our noisy neighbor, our aching knee, our busy mind, oh, then of course we'll be so compassionate and so serene and so calm and so still. But this leads us in a mind that's either always rejecting or always reaching for something else. And honestly, it's a very, it's a very fragile, maybe even a very deluded peace or compassion or calmness that is dependent on the absence of the challenging. It's incredibly easy to be compassionate when we're not disturbed by anything. You know, it's incredibly easy to be calm when there's nothing challenging us. It's so easy to let go when there's nothing that we want. You know, it's very easy to be forgiving when nobody is actually challenging us in any way. But truly, these are the moments that we are asked to be most present. Those moments, those experiences in themselves are not obstacles. The obstacles lie in our rejection, our judgment, our images that camouflage awareness. Sometimes these moments of challenge, although they are painful and although they are difficult, they are the moments when we actually learn many of the deepest le lessons in our lives. They are when we really learn about opening, about acceptance, about understanding, about patience and forgiveness. Out of our commitment to being awake, I think there comes, so there begins to grow, the willingness to say to our demons, well, welcome. Welcome. There is space for you here. There is room for you here. Then we can begin to rest in each moment. You know, if we let go of our aversion for the unpleasant and the craving for the pleasant, we experience incredible calmness in our lives. Calmness is that simple. When 
we are willing to say welcome to our demons, then we do begin to travel new pathways, forsaking the old pathways of struggle, of striving and rejection, but travel the pathways of compassion and wisdom. And sometimes, too, we see our demons are actually transformed into flowers. They become the compost for understanding. Now, in this particular tradition of meditation, we actually don't really engage in a lot of rituals. But in other traditions, rituals are very much more at the forefront. And one of the rituals that is very big in both Tibetan and Zen traditions is actually the ritual of bowing bowing to begin a sitting, bowing to end a sitting, bowing to the teacher, bowing to each other. Suzuki Roshi once said, you know, that sometimes we even bow to cats and dogs. Now, for Westerners, I think bowing, I'm not trying to convert you to bowing, by the way. Westerners, I think, often think of bowing as being rather a strange tradition to engage in because we confuse it with notions that we have that if we bow it means that someone or something is more worthy than we are and that it's a way of devaluing ourselves. But as one nun once explained, you know, we don't bow to something. We don't bow to get something. But actually, we bow to remind ourselves of the Buddha nature in all moments and in all beings. And I'd like to read you something that Suzuki Roshi wrote about bowing. He said, in your big mind, everything has the same value. There is no distinction between heaven and earth, between teacher and disciple. Everything is Buddha. You see something or hear a sound, and there you have everything, just as it is. In your practice, you need accept everything as it is. Giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. Here there is Buddhahood. That the Buddha bows to the Buddha and you bow to yourself. This is the true bow. And as one Zen practitioner was told, when in doubt, just bow. But when we approach our practice, when we approach our sitting and walking every moment with a commitment to wakefulness, a commitment to opening, a commitment to being touched, we are actually bowing in welcome. Even to our demons, we bow in welcome. Here is an opportunity to learn to deepen in acceptance and understanding and patience. Those moments of struggle and challenge, when there's no aversion or rejection, we are bowing. And there is a kind of real quality and depth of transformation that can take place. Now, I feel it is vitally important in this practice to cultivate that attitude of welcome, to nurture a spirit of being unconditionally wakeful and present in the presence of all things. Now, this is this sometimes very difficult for us because it is very contrary to much of our conditioning. You know, I think so often in our world, 
we are taught that if you meet the unpleasant, if you meet the challenging, if you meet the difficult, then the right response is to fix it, to make it perfect in some way. And if you can't fix it, or you can't make it perfect, then you should get away from it, you should get rid of it, or you should abandon it in some way. And I think in this culture of perfection that we grow up in, we can actually grow a little bit of an obsession with fixing ourselves and our world. And it's a kind of fascination that can be transferred to meditation. You know, last year I was speaking to someone in California, no, no, uh, could happen anywhere, not just California, but this person said to me, you know, when, you know, I get so confused now when I have a problem, you know, I don't know if I should do an enlightenment intensive or get a massage or go to my therapist or, or go sit, you know, I have like so many solutions that I hardly even know which one to choose from anymore. I think it's really important that we don't approach meditation as a kind of another solution to add to our portfolio, as a kind of prescription to fix ourselves. That meditation really is a path that's truly concerned actually with wakefulness, not with solutions or conclusions. It's actually a path that's concerned with asking the questions and not even with necessarily finding the answers. This path is a path not of redecorating our consciousness or rearranging our world, but really learning to understand what is true on a heartfelt level to understand what is true, to learn how to make a journey through the world of the challenging and the joyful, to make a journey through the world of chaos and of peace, and to make that journey in a way in which we invite all of those moments as an invitation to us to see what is true to understand what it means to be awake, to understand what it means to be compassionate in those moments. We're not concerned with getting rid of the unpleasant or getting more of the pleasant, but with learning the lessons of peace. In this way, actually, their path concerns everything in our lives. It concerns not just sitting on a cushion or how we walk, but how we see and how we feel and how we touch our world in every moment. What is truly being offered to us here? What is actually being offered to us in this moment? It is a time actually of waking up. It's not always easy. As a matter of fact, many, many times it can be quite difficult and it takes a remarkable courage and a remarkable perseverance to stay steady when somehow, you know, it seems more attractive to, to sink or space out or fade away or, or get lost somewhere. It's such a time, such a challenge to stay present. 
that this practice is made possible, as I've already mentioned, not just by putting in a certain number of hours or going through certain motions, but in a way it is a time of nurturing qualities of heart and mind that gradually, you know, begin to wake us up, gradually nurturing them, allowing ourselves to stumble, allowing ourselves to falter, allowing ourselves, you know, to, to fall down at times, but having that willingness to begin again and to nurture those qualities of heart and mind that bring us closer to ourselves and closer to the moment. Uh, in the Buddhist tradition, some of those qualities of heart and mind are actually called the seven factors of enlightenment. They are qualities that we're cultivating here all of the time, even when we don't know it. One of those factors is the factor of mindfulness. You know, we suggest mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't mean going slowly. Mindful, mindfulness actually means treating this world and everything in it in every moment as being worthy of our respect and our attention. This is what mindfulness is. It's not necessarily a technique, you know, or, or walking without going quickly. It is treating every moment as being equally worthy of our respect and our attention. So we take care in our day. How we move, how we walk, how we sit, how we eat, how we look at each other, how we respond. We take care, not, out of, not in the service of some spiritual ideal, but in the service of compassion, in the service of wisdom. Another of the qualities that we cultivate is the quality of energy and effort. And again, you know, there is an energy and effort that can come out of should, um, out of willpower. There's a quality of energy and effort also that can come out of love a love for well-being, a love of peace, a love of understanding. And that is actually where true energy and true effort can come from. There's also the quality of investigation that I encourage you to cultivate, to really see in your day here, this is a journey of exploration. It's a journey of unfoldment. You know, we don't know the answers. But to keep asking the questions, what is it that sticks? You know, where are the moments we let go? Where are the moments we hold? You know, to really have that sense within ourselves. What is it that we dwell upon? Where is the openness? Where is the contractedness? Just to have that sense of familiarizing ourselves with this inner territory, which is somehow, sometimes and somehow veiled to us. To cultivate the quality of happiness. Meditation deepens most quickly within the field of happiness. I mean, this often sounds really strange to people. So, you know, sometimes people feel, well, if I was you know, actually so delighted with my life, I probably wouldn't even be here. You know, but happiness in meditation is not about, you know, skipping into the meditation and singing little ditties. Or, you, know, you know, it's not about, you know, jumping up and down in the dining room, you know, with a kind of, you know, blissful smile. I think happiness has much more to do with our willingness to welcome. Our willingness to welcome. 
to be present. You know, there is actually a remarkable joy that comes in meditation, that begins to flower in meditation. And it's not a happiness of a kind of elated, exalted mental state. It is often a quiet, a very gentle joyfulness, just in celebrating being, in celebrating our connection with the moment, our connection with life. To cultivate attentiveness, because attentiveness returns us again and again to the moment we are in, in a way that we are present. To cultivate calmness. There's much calmness when we don't draw any conclusions. You know, not drawing conclusions is a way, a real way of cultivating calmness. See how much calmness there is, you know, when you've got some conclusion. You know, that moment when you say, oh, I'm such an angry person. So much calmness there. You know, when you've got the conclusion, oh, I'm always agitated, you know. I'm always dull. Much calmness there? No. You know, think of those moments and you say, I don't know. You know, here there's agitation, here there's dullness, here there's anger, here I am present. You don't know what will unfold. There is much calmness in not cultivating aversion, in not holding on or clinging to the pleasant. There is much calmness. To cultivate equanimity. Tibetan Lama once described equanimity described equanimity as being equally near to all things. And this too is important. We know that again we are not creating dualities of, you know, we should be nearer to the nice things and further from the difficult. To be equally near to all things. To let go of those distinctions between spiritual and unspiritual, worthy and unworthy to be equally near and intimate with all things. These are the factors that, you know, they're not arrival points or destinations even, but they're factors that we learn to bring in again and again, to nourish and to nurture and to care for. And we see as we begin to cultivate these factors, actually we begin to wake up in new ways. We're touched in new ways, and we touch ourselves and our world in new ways, free of so many of the burdens of judgment, of comparison, of forcing, of rejection. We touch with openness and with sensitivity, and we begin to see in that how much that very openness of heart really allows this moment to be a sacred moment allows this space for us to be a sacred space. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings live with openness of heart. May all beings live with compassion. We have just two minutes quietly together and then we'll have a break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.